So please turn with me to Mark 4, 35 through 41. That is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning. Mark 4, 35 through 41. And I ask you, what, what do you fear? What is your, your greatest fear, perhaps? And we can think of all sorts of things, can't we? But, but, but let's go a little bit further. What does it take to even to change that fear? You know, fear is often linked with, with our desires our, and our belief, and it can lead to certain actions and behaviors. So what, is it, what does it change or what does it take to change our, our desire, our actions, our behaviors that relate even to fear? Often in life and, and faith, to actually make a change, a change in attitude, outlook, behavior, the things we've been saying is, is actually what we often find the hardest aspect of our faith. I'm reminded of, of a friend who once told a story uh, when he was preaching, actually, you see, he, he lived in a rougher area, uh, his apartment. It was known for some, some crime. And he was conscious of this fact, and he, he was conscious of the fact that he needed to be aware when he came home late in the evenings, uh, he needed to, need to, to be cautious. Well, one evening it, it happened. He got home late, and he's walking to his apartment door, and lo and behold, he gets robbed. And he loses his wallet. He loses everything he has uh, on him. And he was reflecting on that moment. And, and he said this. He, he knew and he was conscious of the reality that this is something he, that could happen to him at his apartment. But he didn't truly believe it until he had that experience. And it exposed the nature of his unbelief. You would... You, you can imagine there was a pretty big change after that, right? From that point on, he made sure he scanned the parking lot before he, he parked. He parked in the light, and he made sure he was close to his apartment door. There was actually a change that happened. You see, it's the same for us. We struggle to change because oftentimes we're actually struggling with unbelief. And what does it take to change? It begins with what we believe or rather, who we believe in. And, and today we'll be confronted with these questions of fear, change, unbelief. And, and again, we'll see how those very real realities in this narrative in Mark come to bear and are, are connected to the man, the person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So you see, Mark is, is on a mission to show that Jesus the Son of God, in all his divine authority, is bringing the kingdom of God, this otherworldly, heavenly kingdom, he's bringing it to bear on earth now. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he will surprisingly serve and suffer in order to save his people. And most recently, we've been seeing Jesus reveal the kingdom of God through teaching, through parables. And not only is he revealing the kingdom of God, but he's revealing who is inside and outside that kingdom, based on whether or not they're united with Christ. 
And we, we've seen uh, just recently that the nature of God's kingdom is, is that it's already and not yet. That is it, it is, in, it is coming to earth in the man, the Son of God, Jesus, but it's already existed for eternity. God has been ruling and reigning. And so even, even today, we live in this reality of the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom of God, but we are more like outposts of the kingdom, embassies of the kingdom. Therefore, we are ambassadors of this kingdom that is still coming to earth through the reign of Jesus, and he will come to consummate it again. So we see uh, this kingdom now. We're a part of it. But here in Mark, we've been seeing Jesus bring this age to reality, establishing it in real time in the book of Mark. And, and he's been ushering in this kingdom with, with great authority. And, but here we're going to see that Mark actually ups the intensity. So we've seen Jesus do it with authority. We've seen him do it through his teaching. And now, in, in a series of narratives, we're going to see Jesus once again reveal the kingdom of God in power. And this passage, our passage today, is actually closely linked to several passages that will follow. And I was, I was tempted a little bit to try to preach it all together at once. But sure enough, once you start digging down deep into one of the passages, there's just too much. You don't want to shortchange the story. So here today in our passage, we're going to see Mark transition from Jesus revealing the kingdom in parables to revealing it in power. And the Son of God, as we will see, has stepped out of heaven onto the earth, and he is establishing this age of the kingdom. And it will be the greatest kingdom, because he's the greatest king. So, how will this presence of the king and the kingdom actually come to bear on our lives and change us? Look with me at our passage today, and we will consider this. Mark 4:35 through 41, a familiar story. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So we will consider this, this passage in two parts this morning. Uh, in verses 35 through the first half of verse 38, we're going to see the situation, the stormy situation. And, and what we will see is that this is the setting for divine rescue and revelation. That's the first part. Verses 35 through the first half of 38, the stormy situation, the setting for divine rescue and revelation. Then the second part of our passage will be verses 38 through 41, the second half of 38. And it's the response to this situation, or responses, as we will see. And here we will see that divine rescue and revelation instill wonderful fear. 
divine rescue and revelation instills wonderful fear. So, the main exhortation that I'd probably want to draw out from this is this right here. Divine deliverance should produce fearful faith. And this faith is marked by wonderful worship and holy hopefulness. Divine deliverance should produce fearful faith, and this faith is marked by wonderful worship and holy hopefulness. So first, look with me at verses 35 through 38, the stormy situation, the setting for divine rescue and revelation. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. So recall that Jesus has been teaching the parables to the crowd. And while we can't be 100% sure when Jesus started teaching uh, a few uh, verses ago, we see now that evening is approaching. It could indicate that he's been teaching all day. And, and perhaps this is indicative of the fact that he's, he's sleeping. But either way, Jesus issues the command to go across to the other side. Evening's coming. So let's keep this in mind. This entire voyage, this entire trip is Jesus's idea, right? The entire voyage is his idea. So Mark seems to indicate that only Jesus and his followers are making this trip because he notes that they are already leaving the crowd. Now remember, this was a great crowd, and, and, and Jesus had to get into a boat even to teach as a measure of crowd control. So he's already in the boat, which is why it says they took him in the boat just as he was. He's there, and they go, and other boats are following with him. It's probably other followers and disciples of Christ. But the narrative is going to focus on the boat that Jesus is in. And they begin their voyage, and somewhere along the way, this great windstorm arises. Now, keep, keep that word in mind. Great. This is going to be a key word for us this morning. So as we journey through this particular narrative, we're going to collect this word as we go along, as, as we might collect Stones on a hike or something, if you're like my daughter, Evelyn, loves to collect the stones. <laughs> so this windstorm is, is so great that the waves are already cresting over the boat and beginning to fill it. Now, I don't have much boating experience, but this has got to be one of the most helpless feelings in the world. I, the closest thing I can relate to this is when I would go canoeing and kayaking. We used to go on a trip with our church when I was growing up, all of us would go canoeing and kayaking. And, and you can imagine, it's just, it was just a simple river that you float, not very deep. But you can probably imagine when you get about 20 young boys together kayaking, canoeing, that there's going to be some canoe tipping, right? And so once that water would start filling, once it got to a certain point, it was just inevitable. It was going down, right? And even then, in a little canoe, it's just helpless. You can't do anything about it. So I imagine it's, it's something like that feeling, except multiplied infinitely, because 
because it's not a playful situation. Oh, our canoe is going to go down and I might have to stand in three feet of water and pull it out. No, this is the boat is going under. This is a major sea, the Sea of Galilee by geographical location and how his position is in a valley where the winds would come whipping off the hills and the mountains and would all of a sudden stir up these violent storms, right? And this is one of them. You can imagine the chaos. Waves are breaking over the boat. Men with doing a bucket brigade probably scrambling to try to get the the water out as much as they can. And what is Jesus doing? He is sleeping in a boat that is tossing and threatening to capsize. Water is filling it. Jesus is sleeping. I, I, apparently, he's sleeping so hard that the storm doesn't wake him up. His disciples have to. Now, I think Mark means for us to see this. I don't, I don't think we're supposed to try to justify in our minds that, well, maybe this storm just wasn't as bad as it seems. Maybe it, it wasn't as bad as I'm thinking it to be. The boat's filling with water, and Jesus is sleeping. This is meant to be striking and somewhat unbelievable, I think. But this is what is happening. And now we could try to discern some reasons here why or how Jesus is able to sleep while this is going on. Like we said, he perhaps was teaching all day. It could certainly speak to the reality that, that Jesus is exhausted. And from a mental, mentally rigorous and emotionally rigorous day of teaching. Jesus' humanity then is on full display. And this is, this is comforting. Jesus knows the rigors of working and serving and meeting the needs of others. He knows what it's like to be tired and to need to sleep. He's done, he's done that kind of work to the greatest extent. And here he needs sleep. So he sleeps. We can also discern a few other aspects of Jesus here. I think it points to two things, given the context of what we'll read. I think it points to peace and calm. What better picture of peace and calm is there than someone who is fast asleep? Here Jesus is the picture of peace and calm. In the midst of chaos, tribulation, and uncertainty, Jesus' peace and Jesus' calm stand in stark contrast. But something else stands out as well. Not only is Jesus' sleep revealing his humanity or peace and calm in general, it is also revealing his divinity. Jesus' divine sonship is on full display here. Jesus' peace and security in his Father to keep him like, where, where are we getting this? Think of Psalm 127, too. We've been going through the Psalms. For he, the Lord, gives to his beloved what? Sleep. Mark 111, Jesus' baptism. And a voice came from heaven. You are my what? Beloved son. Jesus' sleep is the perfect picture of rest in God. Even in the midst of this storm, Jesus is secure that his Father has him. And so this completes the setting for us. We have the raging storm, the fearful odds, this life-threatening situation, and we have Jesus, the Son of God, sleeping. 
And so now that the stage is set, we can consider actually the deliverance. So look with me at part two, the second half of verse 38 through 41. And these are, these are remarkable responses. These are remarkable responses. Follow along as I read verse, verses 38 through 41. But he was, the last half of verse 38, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Mark, setting the stage, he is building toward a climax here, where he displays Jesus' divine authority, his act of divine deliverance, and he does so by way of three responses. First, we see the disciples' first response, their first revealing response. Then we will see Jesus' revealing response. And then third, we will see the disciples' second revealing response. So the first revealing response is that of the disciples' They wake Jesus with not any manner of, hey, Jesus, wake up. They awake him with accusation, right? They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The tone just comes through the page, doesn't it? The accusatory tone is even more remarkable considering what they've witnessed so far in Jesus' ministry, right? They know he cares. So this, this accusation isn't, isn't as much like saying he doesn't care at all. It's with the reality that they know he cares, and they're saying, if you care so much, why don't you care in this particular moment? If you care, why are you letting this happen? Why aren't you doing anything about this? Why aren't you helping us? We've never asked God that question. Have you ever asked that, God that question? <laughs> right? We, we've had circumstances that seem so dire. Like the disciples, we say, I am perishing. Why aren't you doing anything about this? We all have asked that question. But also notice how they how they ask that question. They use this collective plural, we. Okay, so now the disciples, they could just be referring to themselves, right? We, as we'll see as we go through Mark, the, they're a pretty self-focused bunch, so they could just be saying, why, why are we perishing? But consider the possibility that they're lumping Jesus into their plight as well. We, including you, Jesus, are perishing, So this rhetorical question then seems tinged not only with accusation, but it's tinged with doubt at what Jesus can do. So the disciples are are casting doubt on what Jesus could do to help. They lump Jesus into the same weakness, into the same helplessness before the towering wind and waves that they are experiencing as if he were only human. Now, I said only 
Jesus is fully human, but he is also fully God, the Son of God, and that's one of Mark's main points with his whole book. So listen to this. The disciples try to take Jesus and bring him into their sphere of doubt and try to fit him into their sphere of helplessness as if the same threats that threaten them threaten him. To put it simply, they don't believe in who Jesus is. This is what is happening. And I think Jesus' response will reveal this very thing. So look at Jesus' revealing response. Verses 39 through 40. And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So how does Jesus respond? Two ways. First, Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea. He delivers them. No questions asked. And he does it with stunning authority. Immediately upon waking up, did you hear what I said? Immediately upon waking up, I don't know if you've ever tried to perform a task. (laughs) Immediately upon waking up, no matter how small it is, it usually doesn't go that well for us, right? Uh, I can think of some examples, but. (laughs) Um, But here, we have Jesus performing a monumental task, and he makes it look as routine and menial as rolling over and punching the alarm clock. He wakes up, rebukes the wind and the sea, and they stop. And what's the result? The wind ceases. And how, does, how is that described? There is a great calm. What kind of calm? Great. So there's our key word again. So the great storm has given way to a great calm because of Jesus' divine authority to command the wind and the waves. Now, Scripture makes clear that the wind and the waves are God's alone to command. God alone owns the earth. Psalm 24, 1 through 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Remember God's response to Job. Job 38. God asked Job, Or who shut the sea in with doors when it burst out from the womb. When I made clouds its garments and thick clouds its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Only God can command the wind and the waves. And here Jesus does what only God can do. And just like God commanded the wind and the waves to make way for the Israelites when they were escaping Egypt across the Red Sea. Here Jesus commands the wind and the sea to obey him in order to deliver his helpless people. So Jesus, by his response of deliverance, is revealing his divine authority. This first revealing response. But there's some other key things I want to point out in this response, and they're quite revealing as well, as the rest of our text will confirm. The language of cease here that Mark chooses to use, it's it's only used a few times, 
in, in the New Testament, and it's only used by Mark here with regard to this account. So in the Old Testament, this, this word was often associated with the ceasing and the stopping of divine judgment. So Israel in the wilderness, for example, being judged by God for their unbelief, and, and Moses would plead and God would cease the judgment. Or even the, the floods in the time of Noah, they ceased. So, there's nothing explicit in our passage this morning that points to this storm being divine judgment. But, I do think Mark intends to illustrate that idea here. Why? Because as we've already noted, and as Jesus is about to make clear, the disciples' fear arises from what? Unbelief. And Jesus will in the same breath not only rebuke the wind and the sea, but he will rebuke his disciples as well. So look with me at the second part of Jesus's response. Verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So Jesus's first response was to rebuke the wind and the sea. His second response, to rebuke his disciples for fear and unbelief. Now, we might look at this and say, well, that's pretty harsh, right? I mean, we've just talked about how helpless of a feeling this would be, how, how scary of a situation, and Jesus is going to rebuke them for being afraid? Sinking in a ship, it's, it's, it's got to be a horrible feeling. But, but Jesus still rebukes their fear. And Mark uses a distinct word here to describe the disciples' fear, once again. It's not the same word that we will read later in our passage in the Greek. Here, this word conveys the idea of cowardice, faint-heartedness, hopelessness. Jesus labels the disciples' reaction to the storm as cowardice. Again, we may think, okay, this is a little harsh. This is a really, really scary situation. Come on, Jesus. But this is precisely the point that Jesus is driving at. The disciples despite the situation, should not have been afraid. Why? Because Jesus is with them. Because Jesus is with them. Because Jesus is with them. What does Jesus tie their hopeless fear to? He ties it to their unbelief. Do you not yet have faith? This rebuke is so revealing. We, we see it and we think this is only a natural reaction. There is nothing out of the ordinary here. It's scary to have a boat almost sink. But what it reveals is not doubt or unbelief in the disciples' own ability or the ability of this vessel to manage the storm. What it reveals is their doubt and unbelief in the object of their faith. Jesus, the Son of God. They have the Son of God, the one who created the wind and the waves in the boat with them, and they doubt him. They try to bring Jesus into their sphere of helplessness and hopelessness. 
But what does Jesus do? He brings them into his sphere of perfect peace and perfect calm. Jesus, in his great calm, absorbs the great storm and the unbelief of his disciples. That's how salvation works, isn't it? Jesus comes and brings us into union with him, not the other way around. We don't bring him into union with us. So Jesus has been revealing in his words and deeds that he is the Messiah, and, and, more, than the, and more than that, he is the Son of God. And Jesus makes clear that the disciples' union with him should lead to real, tangible courage in the face of this storm. This is even more striking given what we've seen in Mark. These guys are insiders. They have the secret of the kingdom, the mystery, Jesus himself. And now they look like outsiders. This just goes to show us that they are not our model for discipleship in the book of Mark. Jesus, the original insider of the kingdom, he is our model. So, Jesus expects their faith to be marked by change in action or disposition. Jesus is full of hope, and he shares that hope with them openly. In fact, this is why Jesus does all of this in the first place. It's to change them. So Jesus is revealing in two ways. He reveals his divinity by rebuking the wind and the waves, and he reveals the disciples' unbelief by his rebuke of them. Now look with me, verse 41, our final revealing response, the disciples' second revealing response. Verse 41, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So, thirdly and finally, we see here our last revealing response. So while the climax in this narrative may seem to be Jesus' divine act of authority over the sea, we would actually be wrong if that's the way we read it. It is astounding, but it's not the peak of this narrative. Mark has been driving towards another climax all along. All the action comes to head here, and they were filled with what? Great fear. This could literally be translated, it's emphasized in the Greek, it could literally be translated this way. They, they, were, they feared a great fear, or they, they were afraid with great fear. And notice our key word again, great. So you see how Mark's been driving towards this? The great storm gives way to a great calm, which gives way to a great fear. What are they afraid of? Well, the better question is, who are they afraid of? They are afraid of, they are in awe of, they are revering Jesus. This fear does not lead them to flee in cowardice. Now, this is, this is a fear that leads them to great wonder. Who then is this? So who is this one? Well, they've seen more of him uh, than what they've seen before. They've seen him uh, uh, 
command the wind and the waves, and they obey just like Yahweh would do. And they want to know more of who this one is. We know he's the Son of God, but I would be remiss if I did not direct our attention to how closely Mark parallels this account with an Old Testament narrative. And it's one of those that's there, and it's so, as you look at it, you just have to go there. Mark is, Mark is wanting us to go there. And it's the, the narrative of Jonah. If you recall, in Jonah's narrative, we have some very similar features. Jonah is asleep in the ship in the midst of a great storm. The crew has to wake Jonah up in the midst of the great storm. I don't think Jonah was sleeping in the peace of the Lord. I think he was just a good sleeper, maybe. But the waves and the wind cease. That's what the, the crew desires, the waves and the wind to cease. And they do, ultimately, when Jonah is thrown overboard and the storm immediately stops. And then, what does the crew do? They worship God. So, those are the similarities. And the, con- the contrasts are also important. Jonah was fleeing God in disobedience. He was the reluctant prophet. He had a mission to take the word of God to a people. And he was disobeying. And here we have Jesus acting in perfect obedience taking the word of God to all people in perfect obedience. And he will proclaim it. And he will sacrifice his life in that perfect obedience to save people, not from a natural disaster, but a supernatural disaster. I think Mark is wanting us to see that something greater than Jonah is here. A better prophet who would sacrifice his life to bring this word to fruition in obedience. Now remember something else that we pointed out at the beginning. This entire trip was whose idea? It was Jesus's. Why, we might ask, why would he do all of this? What is the point? Surely he who has control of the wind and the waves know when the wind and the waves are going to pick up and start a storm. So why would Jesus do this? Why would he order and sovereignly lead his disciples into such a situation? Because the true threat in this entire narrative was never the storm. That was not what was going to cost them their lives. The true threat in the lives of his people, in the lives of the disciples, was their unbelief. Jesus does this to save their souls. There's only one other instance where this word for fear, this cowardice, this hopelessness appears in the New Testament outside of this narrative where it is connected explicitly with faithlessness. And we heard it this morning. Revelation 21.8. Their cowardice and faithlessness are tied directly to all manner of sinfulness. Murderers, sexual immorality, liars. All of those who have inheritance in the lake of fire, the second death. 
this type of hopeless fear and faithlessness are defined by those fruits. And Jesus will not let his people languish in such a place, even if it means subjecting them to such a storm. He does this so that they would fear him only. He does this because they love they because he loves them. He is their friend and he desires to save them. They would not even know that this unbelief was in them had it not been for this storm. Thus, fear is the antidote for fear. Fear of the Lord is the hope of salvation. It's the antidote for unbelief, for change. A greater fear that leads to greater desire. I tried to find some other verses as examples where fear of the Lord is tied directly to blessing and salvation. There were too many. So I decided to look. I'll just look in the Psalms. There were still too many. So here's just a sampling, including a well-known proverb. Proverbs 3, 7, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 34, 10, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Psalm 40, verse 4, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Psalm 47, 3, for the Lord, the most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Psalm 55, 20, God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old because they do not change and do not fear God. Psalm 64, 10, then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Psalm 115:11. to you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Psalm 128, 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. Psalm 145, 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Psalm 147, 11, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Jesus saved them for his name's sake that they might know his power. Jesus commands the wind and the seas in order that his disciples would know him and believe his words. He directed them into the storm for this very purpose, that they would see Jesus and believe in him. Remember, Jesus told them that those who had been given the mystery of the kingdom would know more and more of this kingdom. And Jesus is revealing more and more of who he is to them. And God will do the same for you and me. God loves us too much to leave us in hopeless fear and unbelief. He will melt away all of the dross, all of the unbelief, and bring about fear and wonder of who he is alone. He will forge our faith in the furnace of fear So God will orchestrate our lives in such a way to teach us, to know him, to believe his words. 
and teach us to fear him. This might perhaps look like dire straits where we absolutely see no way out. Our boat is taking on water. We can barely get our head above it. We feel as if we are perishing, but God is using these very events to uncover unbelief that we would never know was there. It would be like an unseen cancer that goes undiagnosed and grows throughout our body and consumes our souls. But God performs the necessary exploratory surgery on our souls through dire circumstances. The trials and suffering of this life are to produce a salvation, a belief in God alone. Joni Erickson Tata, you might recognize that name, woman who's endured, who endured much suffering, uh, paralyzed from the neck down when she was 17 in just a freak diving accident. And when asked about what she thought about her healing, her future healing, she said this. She said, I am more concerned about the healing of my soul and my heart than my physical healing. That is what God had worked into her life through all these years of suffering. God will take us through circumstances in order for us to see him as he truly is, perfectly peaceful, perfectly powerful, the beloved. He is our great deliverer who directs the high winds and the seas of our life so that we no longer wonder about in unbelieving fear, but that we wonder at who this one is. That we fear only him, our deliverer, our friend, the Lord. Brings to mind a a relatively well-known, I think, quote in our circles. (laughs) C.S. Lewis, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Susan and, and Lucy, they've just learned from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver that the rightful ruler of Narnia, Aslan, is a great lion. Not a man. Here's the conversation that follows. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In Jesus, our great high king, the son of God, we have a fearful deliverer. And he will captain our ship into some fearful, fearful odds. But he does this so that we would see him as greater than anything else we could ever face. And he is the one who can do this because he has faced fiercer odds than you or I ever will. And he does it all in order to save you and me. You see, you see, he commands reverence, fear, and awe. But he is also the good, kind, gentle Savior who is willing to lower himself to save 12 guys in a 
in a beat-up old fishing vessel in order to open their eyes to see who he is, and he will do the same for you. That we may see him and fear him alone. He is our great king. He is greater and stronger than anything we will face, and he is good and kind. And he will save us. Pray with me.